look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us in your word. I pray that, Lord Jesus, you would be glorified. And that, Father, as you reign sovereign over the affairs of men, that, Lord, your kingdom would come in all its glory. Father, that we would see lives transformed by the gospel around us. Bless us today as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. I kind of apologize. We've bogged down in this portion of the gospel as we've been talking about the woman at the well. I think we're going to finish through this today, Lord willing. We're going to pick up reading in verse 27. There are various stages in the story. Jesus and his disciples arrived at Sychar. Jesus is sitting by the well. A woman comes. The disciples have gone down into the city to buy something to eat because Jesus is tired. Jesus has a conversation with a woman. Jesus uses the analogy of the water of life and how he is the water of life. And that if she will come and drink of him, she will never thirst again. He then leads out of her her deepest struggle in life, which is the failed relationships that she has serially been having with other men. And then from that goes into a conversation about worship. And then in verse 27, the disciples get back. When the disciples get back, they are marveling. They are amazed. This isn't something that commonly happens in their world. So they're amazed. They're amazed that he was talking with a woman, but no one would dare say to him, what are you seeking or why are you talking to her? (coughs) Notice the next thing, because it obviously tells us that John is an eyewitness of the event. And he makes note of something that almost in passing, wouldn't seem to be that important, but in another way it is, in the detail of the story. So the woman left her water jar. She came to draw water. She leaves her water jar. She goes into the town and she says to the people in the village, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could not this be the Christ? And they went out of the town, and they are coming to him. They are on their way. She goes into the city. She announces, come, come with me. Meet a man who told me everything I ever did. They are following, and they are on their way. They're coming up the hill, so to speak. They're coming out of the village. They are journeying towards Jesus, although they have not yet met him. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, and they say to him, Rabbi, teacher, eat. 
But he's saying to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then will come the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes. He's literally pointing them to the people who are coming out of the village on their way, journeying to Jesus. They have left. The woman is bringing them. They are coming up the hill, and they're talking with Jesus at the well. And Jesus says, look, lift up your eyes. See the people coming? The fields are white. They're all ready to harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two more days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is not because of what he said to you that we believe. For we have heard with our own ears. And we know, indeed, this is the Savior of the world. You know, many seminaries have schools of what's called missiology, mission, missiology. And schools of missiology study cross-cultural evangelism. They talk about strategies for winning the lost. They talk about church planning. They talk about raising up indigenous leadership and all those kind of things. They talk about how to fulfill the Great Commission. Missiology. This woman gets her done. It's kind of messiology. Right? This woman has been a mess. And yet she meets Jesus and her life is transformed. In very short order, she has found the Messiah, although the Messiah is the one who found her. And he had sought her out. Her life has been changed. And she knows nothing except this one thing. Whereas once I was blind, now I see. And she goes back into town and she tells everyone Come meet a man. Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. And they come, and they believe. And they tell her, we're not believing because of what he said to you. We're believing because of what he said to us. And he stayed there for two days. 
Now, there's a lot of movements in the text. There's kind of a flow to the story as we look at what we're going. We see the return of the disciples. The disciples have just come back. They'd gone into the village to buy food. Now they come back. Jesus is sitting by the well. He's just finishing up a conversation. They're amazed that he's in conversation with this woman. Nobody says anything to him and all the details that we read in the text, in the flow of the text. We then see the hurried departure of the woman. The woman is getting out of there. She gets out of there so quickly she leaves her water pot. It's almost like what Jesus said to Peter. Leave your net. I'm going to teach you how to be a fisher of men. And this woman leaves her jar. She goes back into the city and she finds everybody she can. She says, come meet a man that told me everything I ever did. And those people are following her and coming up the hill. And as they are coming up the hill, Jesus gets into a dialogue with his disciples. They talk about food. They talk about sowing and reaping. We'll look at those details in a minute. We then see the return of the villagers. The villagers get to Jesus. They visit with him. They meet him. They implore him to stay. He stays for two days and he teaches them. And many in the village of that Samaritan believe. Many in that village believe. Now, I don't want to take a long time to develop this, but I want us to think about something really important here. This village is a hotbed of false idolatry and distorted biblical revelation. Okay? It's kind of like what we would think of today as one of those hard places to reach. We kind of live in one. But you know what? It is no issue for Jesus. He has no difficulty reaching those sheep who are his in that town. He gets them. It's important we realize that. Sometimes we give ourselves a pass. Like, well, we just live in one of those places that's kind of hard to share the gospel because people have heard it all. And maybe they have their own set of presuppositions about what the Bible means. And they maybe have their own lingo. And we kind of talk at each other with a different set of definitions. And there are hurdles to the gospel. But in reality, they are not hurdles to God. God is powerful. He can and he will save. But he has told us to do what? Look. Lift up your eyes. What happens to us? We get busy and we get diverted. And we lose the gospel edge. And Jesus comes back to us and says, look, here's your priority. Lift up your eyes. Sow, plant, plant, plant. And there will come a harvest. Now, as we look at this, there's some things that I want to think. And this is the big point I want to get across to us this morning. There are two qualities 
in this text that we are studying, that if they are true of us, if I own these things, they will set me on a path to God's blessing. And I want to take the text and just develop them for a minute this morning. These two qualities, young people, we got a bunch of kids graduating. We've got kids that are not yet graduating but are getting close to that next stage in life. Kids that are growing up in our church. I, I want to stress, you know, it's, this is important for all of us. It's not like you get over this, okay, adults. But kids, when you map out your life and you look at your life and the direction that God is taking you and you are commencing on a journey... You are either going to, you know, there's two roads that diverge in a yellow wood, right? And I could not be one traveler and travel both. You're either going to find yourself on a road of life that God blesses you, your life will not be perfect, and you will have difficulties, and you're still going to struggle, but you will find yourself on a road to God's blessing. Or you will make a different set of decisions, and you will put yourself on a road that God does not bless. And he kind of takes his hand off you. And you'll bring sometimes great sadness and misery into your life because of decisions you make. That's true of all of us as adults, but especially true of young people as you're getting a start. And as you get a start, and then also as we go through life, there are two qualities that if these define us, as an individual of our heart. They will set us on a road to blessing and keep us on a road to blessing. Here's the two points I want to make this morning. Number one is a heart of worship. A heart of worship. We saw that in the text, and we'll talk about it again, where Jesus says to this woman, God is seeking. Not just busy people doing things for him. God is seeking what? Worshippers. Worshippers. A heart of worship. Number two is a hunger to do God's will. Not your own will. Not asking yourself, you know, what do I want to do with my life? What, what pleases me? No, a hunger and a thirst to do God's will. What did Jesus say? You don't know what I've been eating. He says this to his disciples, you don't know what I've been eating. My food is to do what? The will of him who sent me. And to accomplish that work. So we want to look at these things. Let's talk about these qualities that put us on a path towards blessing. First of all, we've been talking about worship when Jesus was in conversation. And we didn't read those verses again this morning. But if you look back, remember in verse 19, it kind of began when the woman says to him, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she asks him a question about worship because her ancestors were worshiping on Mount Gerizim. And there was a temple there that God had knocked down. Because it was a false temple, and so John Hyrcanus came in with an army and knocked it down during the period of the Maccabeans. 
And yet people in Samaria are worshiping not in Jerusalem where God had commanded them at the time. They are worshiping on these high places in the hill country of Samaria. And so she asked him a question, you know, where are we to worship? You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. We say it's up here. And Jesus goes, and what did he say? Well, there's coming a time when it's not going to really matter. It's even now come. Because true worshipers will worship in what? Spirit and in truth. And so true worship, we talked about this last week, happens when our head, truth, when we have in our head the truth of God's word and we understand the gospel and we've been born again and we are worshiping God in truth, and then my heart, spirit, sincerity, genuineness, a longing that comes from within me, is in the same place. You can be in this place and you can truly worship God. Or you can be in this place and you cannot so truly worship God, right? And it all depends on where's your head and where's your heart. Now, we see in the gospel, we see in this account that Jesus says to them, true worship can happen anytime. It doesn't just happen here. It can happen any time during the week, and it should happen all the time during the week. It can happen any time. Now, that was true in the Old Covenant. Read the Psalms of David. What did he say? Early I seek you. When I'm in bed at night, my heart is longing for you. David was worshiping any time. He didn't just go to the temple to worship, but there was still a focus in the Old Covenant on the place of worship. And so we also see here, not, can, not only is it a day, it's not just confined to one day, it can happen anywhere, anytime, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are or when you are there. Your heart can engage with God in worship. Although it's true that there's any time and anywhere, it's not true that God will just take worship any old way. No, there's only one way. You can worship God anytime and anywhere. But if you will worship God in truth, you must worship him in one way. And that is through Jesus Christ. He alone is the one that we worship the Father and through the Spirit, him. One way. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. So true worship can happen anytime, it can happen anywhere, but it can only happen one way. This little paragraph, I think I've shown it to you before, that John Piper wrote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, has been one of the most revolutionary passages in a book, a human book, to me personally, in my life. Somehow, the book is Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a book on missiology. But he begins the book by saying this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because true worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not missions. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, think about this, 
missions is done. But what continues? Worship. Because God is ultimate. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Why do we engage in worship or in missions? Because there are people who do not worship God in truth. And they need to hear the message. So number one, when we think about this, our life should be defined by a seeking after God in worship. This week on Thursday night, I went to hear a guy speak up in Jackson who was visiting there. He's the, uh, i got to get it right, executive vice president of student affairs or something at the Master's College in California. And he... It was a group gathering, and I went to listen to him, and he brought a tremendous message on Second Chronicles chapter 12 and on the life of Rehoboam. And I put this verse up because it really, I mean, I mean, it was like an arrow driving into my heart. What God was teaching me through this guy as he was preaching on Thursday night. But he drew our attention to King Rehoboam. You know the guy became an abysmal failure, and he's... Split the nation. But look at what it says here. So King King Rehoboam, my spell check definitely did not like that word. (laughs) So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and he reigned. And he did evil. Four. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Think of the cause and effect there. Why was his life defined by evil? Was it because he was a bad guy? You know, he did. When you read the text and you study through his life, you will see he did a lot of good things. But when he got to the end of his life, God gives us his obituary. How would you like God to write an obituary for you? And God said of this man, he did evil. And why did he do evil? Because. So this is cause and effect. What started the chain of events that caused him to do evil in the sight of God. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. To seek speaks of intentionality, doesn't it? To intentionally pursue someone or something. To seek it. Do you remember, guys? That woman that you're sitting next to that is the mother of your children, do you remember the first time you saw her? And something went off in your heart and there was like fluttering in your belly? And it just didn't happen by osmosis that you just got married, did it? It didn't, wasn't just dumb luck. What did you do? You set your heart to do what? Seek her. 
You did what? You intentionally pursued her. And in the end, you were able to do what? Marry her, raise children with her, and build a home. And that all started because you did what? You set your heart to pursue her. Are we setting our heart not just to be religious, not to be good, to seek the Lord? That should define our life. Second one is a hunger for God's will. What are you hungry for? Big Mac? You won't get one in this town, will you? Got to drive to Idaho Falls if that's what you like. But what are you hungry for? Jesus' life is defined by a hunger for God's will. He says, He has sent me, and I will accomplish it. He is pursuing it with dogged determination. He sets his face like a flint. He has a hunger for God's will. Now, think of the metaphor. Think of the kind of figure of speech. We have food and we have God's will. And Jesus, in this analogy, if you look at it, if the disciples are urging him, eat, he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. His disciples said to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? You know, what's going on here in their minds? They're perplexed and they maybe are doubting. They're like, oh man, we let Jesus down. Somebody else had to give him something to eat. Hope it wasn't bad. Hope it wasn't tainted food. Oh, you can imagine what they're going through. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, let's think of the analogy. Food basically does two things for us. Number one, it sustains us, doesn't it? Sustains us. Um, You can go for quite a while without eating. By the way... You will lose weight. If you want to go on a diet, you know, there's a good way to do it. Just, I had to do this, you know, because of what happened to me physically. I just got to a place where I couldn't hardly eat. Well, you know what happened? I mean, I went from 195 pounds to 130. It just happened. Why? Because I couldn't eat. Because food sustained me. I got very weak. Very weak. In short order, food sustains your life. If you don't eat, you can't live, right? You need it. It sustains you. Now, think about this. What sustains us in life? Is it just being able to, you know, get time off, take a vacation? You're depleted. You feel it in your soul. How do you get, you know, reinvigorated? Jesus is weary sitting by the well. What reinvigorates Jesus? Doing God's will. Doing God's will is what sustains. Doing God's will is what brings what? Secondly, satisfaction. Satisfaction. There's nothing in this world that will satisfy your heart, kids, like living in God's will. 
If you want to find true satisfaction and meaning in life, it's not found in money. It's not found in fame. It's found in Jesus and doing the will of God. So food, God's will, number one, sustains us, and number two, it satisfies us. God is telling us there, you want to have real satisfaction in life, pursue me and do my will. Those are the defining qualities. Then he comes to a place, well, let's just talk about this. This is truly exemplified. Amy and I were talking about this this, just this morning, and I had to build a new screen and put it in my presentation because Amy was blessed by this, and I thought, man, this was good. This was truly exemplified by Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, she's just going through life. Young maiden, living her life, doing her thing. And an angel comes to her and says, uh, God has chosen you and your life is never going to be the same going forward, dude. Right? You're going to bear the Messiah. Well, I don't really want that. That's going to screw everything up for me. How am I going to explain that? What did she say? What did she say? Let it be to me as you have said. That proves what of her heart. She was not seeking her own will. She was seeking whose? God's. So Jesus comes to the place. Oh, this is another one. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages. Why is this important? Jesus says this is connected to this idea of food. You don't have to get to heaven to reap a reward. You will reap a reward here and now if you are faithful in doing God's will. So Peter puts it this way. After the story of the, the rich young ruler, Peter goes to Jesus and says, Look, you know, I know the rich young ruler. He just walked away. He didn't leave everything. But Peter says, Look, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, I assure you, there is no one who leaves house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields because of me in the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now, at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. Oh, by the way, you will get persecuted, but you will get eternal life. And many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You don't got to wait to get to heaven to get a reward. All you got to do is be faithful and serve the Lord now, and you will have something to eat that nobody else understands. It will bring you satisfaction. And you will receive a hundred times more now than you could ever dream. He closes with a command. There is a concluding command. He says, look, lift up your eyes. He talks about sowing and reaping. He says, pick up your eyes from what you're doing. Look out there. There are people who are coming to me, and we must sow and we must reap. Now, when you think about sowing and reaping, we've got to finish this quick. Here's a principle. He that sows, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you sow sparingly, do you get a big harvest? Do you? If you chintz on the seed, do you get a big harvest? No. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. In between all our storms, I had about eight acres. I tried to get some alfalfa and, and, and uh, grain and stuff into that eight acres real quick. And I use a broadcaster to do it, and then I drag it in behind. And 
So I was out there, and you know, there's always a temptation on my part because I'm a tightwad, I'm a miser, is to skimp on the seed. Costs too much. But if I skimp on the seed, what am I going to get in the fall? I ain't going to get much of a harvest. I got to put up the money front, up front. I got to invest, even at great cost, if I expect to reap bountifully. Look, we are not going to reap bountifully for the kingdom unless we go out there and we sow seed. Ah, am I stingy with seed? He who goes out with weeping, bearing seed for sowing, will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Matthew chapter 9, Jonathan read it to us this morning. Pray, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out reapers into his field. I was reading the other morning an article that was posted on the Gospel Coalition's devotional by a guy named David Platt. David Platt wrote a book called Radical. Maybe you've read it, seen it. He's a well-known pastor. Excellent article. He he just got back from a trip to the Amazon. He went down there with a bunch of trekkers, and they went with a side goal of doing evangelism. They trekked up the Amazon and saw a lot of cool things and were able to share the gospel and, and he shared this story that just riveted me and made me really think, and I'll bring the message to a close with these thoughts. They're sitting around the fire one night. He's got all these guys who have taken them on this trek. And it said the following night around the fire, one of the guides, his name was Lewin, Lewin recalled some of the stories that I'd been sharing. And Lewin said, when you were telling those stories, he said, I had an unusual feeling inside. Like my heart was beating out of my chest. These stories have that kind of effect on people, I said. Then my fellow trekkers and I took turns sharing the larger story of the Bible, the good news of how Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death for sinners. And he rose from the grave in victory over death. On the last night of the trek, Bieto spoke up again. Bieto said, when you share these stories about Jesus, I feel like I have a dirty heart. Is there a way my heart can be made clean? That's the good news about Jesus, I said. The reason he came was to give us a new heart. And then here's the gripping part. That's when Lewin said words I'll never forget. These stories about Jesus are so good. These stories about Jesus are so good, he said with wonderment. And they seem so important. I just don't understand why we and our tribes and all our ancestors before us have never heard it 
until now. They seem so important. I just don't understand. Why have we never heard? There's a man named William Carey who was a pioneer of foreign missionaries. He was from London, England. He went to India. He went in a day when communication was sparse, travel was dangerous, and death was a very real possibility. The church in England at the time had been lulled asleep. Foreign missions had become non-existent. And God began to move on the heart of a guy named William Carey, Andrew Fuller, and John Ryland. And they would meet over a map of the world on their knees and pray for the world. And they wet that map with their tears. They that sow in tears. And God began to feel, or excuse me, William Carey began to feel God moving on his heart to go. And he was scared. He was afraid. He called his two closest friends, Andrew Fuller and John Ryland, And he met with them. And William Carey explained to them that he saw this desire in his heart to do missions as if it was a miner that was going to penetrate into a deep mine which had never been explored and there was no one to guide. And so he turned to his friends and he said to them in solemn prayer, he said, I will go down if you will hold the rope. I will go down if you will hold the rope. And John Ryland wrote in his journals of that moment, he said, William Carey turned to us and he took a solemn oath from each of us. At the mouth of the pit, to this effect that as long as we lived we would never let go of his rope and Kerry went down and India was never the same pray the Lord of the harvest set your heart to seek the Lord and hunger for his will And all will be well. Father, I pray that you would bless us. I pray, I thank you for the mothers that you have called in this place to raise up godly seed, to bring up children for your glory. I pray that, Lord, they would go down into the pit and we will hold the rope for them as they train those kids. I pray for young people in this place that are yet to go, that you are calling. I I think of young couple that has come to us for support. She was raised in the church, Jameson and Haley. 
They want to go down into the pit in Logan and plant a church. Help us to hold that rope. Lord, help us to understand that this story, the gospel, is important. And there are people who have never heard. They may be our neighbors. Help us, Lord, to step out in faith and to go down into that pit to share the gospel with them. Lord, help us to lift up our eyes to look on the fields. In Jesus' name, amen.